This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. But it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Are we nearly there yet? It has been a brutal day for for UK assets following a series of brutal days. But today, the icing on the cake. So let me just give you an idea, Alex, of the mm. scale of some of the moves that we've seen today. So the UK 30-year, the safest of the safe, is down by 100 basis points today, 105.9 basis points to be precise, as the Bank of England steps in. UK Nat Gas is up by 25 basis points. WTI crude, well, let's call it Brent crude, is up by 2.36%. Equities are a non-event. And, and over the last hour, the pound has decided to put in a bit of an appearance. Actually, to be honest, this is a, this is a dollar move. The dollar's getting crunched over the last hour. The pound's now up by 1%. Yeah. I am genuinely confused by all of this. Uh, the dollar, Bloomberg dollar index had its biggest drop now in about two weeks. Um, yields here also pushing lower, nowhere near what we're seeing over in the gilt market. Uh, and equity is catching um, a, a little bit of a bid. I don't know how you make any sort of cohesive narrative about this market when you have this kind of massive intervention like you did um, from the BOE in the back end of the curve. Uh, I don't know how you really extrapolate at this point. So today was so today was about financial stability. Today wasn't about mm-hmm. anything other than we have a major problem in the in the pension industry, um, and and we need to fix it. And as a result of which, we need to become the the market maker of last resort. In theory, this is meant to be short term, time limited. Uh, and actually, in, in kind of relation to what some people were talking about, the Bank of England hasn't had to actually buy that much today in order to stabilise the situation, but it has had the effect. So this was a targeted financial stability move. Th- th- there is still this huge expectation that much more is going to be required. And I think the market is still trying to understand the scale of what mm-hmm. more is going to be required and the impact that it will have. Yeah, and and I think what I have a hard time understanding is this arbitrary October 14th scenario. Um, and also how you talk up rates, but then in essence do a short-term QE. I, I don't know what's going to change October 15th, or if it's just about buying the government time to get its act together or to yep. find a way to be more fiscally responsible within um, this fiscal event. Uh, yep. I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's this feels around. unprecedented, I, honestly. It, it, it is. I, it is. I, I, I can't remember seeing. Point move. I mean, oh my God. Uh, you, yeah. So, so there's this GMM function on the Bloomberg terminal. It can kind of, it basically it's is like a dashboard of really big moves. It's one of my favorite yeah. favorite functions. Now you can have it at kind of G10 setting, G20. You can have it globally. Now 100 basis point move in an emerging market. You, you probably see that not that infrequently. To see that at the back end of the UK gilt curve is is surprising, to say the least. Um, Let's get some assessment of what is happening here. J.B. Rush has been joining us over the last few days to give us his take on what has been going on. Eddie van der Voelt is joining us on the line as well from New York. Jamie, let me start with you. Today was, a, today was about financial stability. Today was about rescuing the, the pension industry. This was a targeted strike designed to deal with market instability. Where does it leave the Bank of England? Well, it leaves it in a very difficult position because it's 
this was this was obviously a financial stability measure convincing the public of that convincing markets of that is not uh, all that straightforward because what it does is it has taken pressure off the government to act i mean the the pensions industry suffering was one of the consequences of the fiscal policy mistake that's been made and the bank of england has stepped in and calmed things down which obviously takes a little bit of pressure off or a huge amount of pressure off the government to reverse course or to do whatever it is they they think they need to do it's, but what it has done as as bought the government time so these interventions will presumably soothe the market for for a while i imagine that they'll probably go on for the whole of october if um if the government doesn't announce anything um but still what's needed is a is a solution to the original problem not mm-hmm. uh, a series of monetary policy interventions just waiting for the regulation on these kind of pension funds now at some point to kick in. Um, also joining us, Edward Harrison, Bloomberg's senior markets editor, uh, joining us. Um, Edward, you know, the conversation that we were talking about, like this is clearly a UK-specific issue that was targeted in a very specific way. But the fallout, though, what have you noticed across markets? I think that there's been a uh, good amount of volatility uh, leading up to this. And uh, a lot of it, as you have seen, it's in the bond markets and in currency markets. Now, bond markets are supposed to be, especially government bond markets, safe assets. And so people use it as collateral. People use it for leverage. Uh, and so when you see this amount of volatility, eventually something breaks. And what the, the extreme level of volatility that we saw after the mini budget in the UK is what precipitated the breakage, that is the pension company uh, cash calls. Um, We can't rule that out in other markets going forward. And at its its heart, it's really about the Fed uh, putting on the turbochargers, forcing other central banks to make the unpalatable choice of either allowing their currencies to drop and importing inflation or uh, being forced to also match uh, the Fed to quell their own inflation and uh, crunch their economies. And when the UK decided to opt out of the one, uh, the markets went on strike in a very aggressive way. Jamie, the markets did did go on strike. We've seen it sort of rippling across a series of asset classes. The, The Bank of England, though, had to react today. As you say, it may have bought the government may have bought the government time, but it does raise the question of whether or not, as well, that we are we are potentially at a pivot point. That the rate of change, and, and Ed was alluding to this, in in a number of bond markets around the world has been ferocious, and I'm wondering if we're getting to the point where central banks are going to have to think about financial stability as being equal, or if not more important than inflation. Yeah, I mean, I, so what has happened today? The bank has minted fresh reserves and promised to spend them on yep. buying assets. That is inflationary and pound negative. Yep. So they're doing exactly the opposite thing that they actually want to be doing, which is tackling inflation. And it's the government which has obviously forced them into this position. And so we've taken another step down in credibility in the sense that the government's actions are making it almost impossible for the bank to operate independently and keep inflation in check as it would normally want to do. It's, that's, one in, well, that's one instance of, of where things are going. The UK is in a particularly bad position. It's been singled out because it has bad policy. But it's completely true, and I agree with those comments earlier, that the, this is a global problem as well. I mean, mm-hmm. bond markets have sold off everywhere, and we are looking at other countries. We are looking at Italy, and we are thinking this is not a sustainable situation. 
Well, no, but then maybe the ECB is going to keep buying Italy under its uh, transmission program. Um, to that, to to Guy's point, um, Jamie, just a technical thing, and I've been really struggling to understand why the magic number of October fourteenth. Do we expect something magical to happen the fifteenth? I don't think there's anything scheduled. It's kind of a couple of weeks window, isn't it, for the government yep. to get its act together? So it's just basically like giving the government time to do something. I think so. That's mm. all. That is all it's done. Yeah. Ed, from your perspective, and just picking up on what Jamie has said, I bond markets around the world, and he singled out the BTP market. But I, but I'm I, I'm looking at a treasury market that that has moved very quickly, and I know it's selling off this afternoon. Actually, um, um, sorry, it's, it, we're, we're seeing yields coming down this afternoon. Big bid coming back into the into the bond market, but but yields have moved ferociously in the states as well. The housing market is beginning to slow down quite rapidly. And I'm wondering whether there's evidence that there are financial stability concerns there as well that could maybe at the margin just start to slow the Fed down a bit. Yeah, I think that uh, more than anything, it's probably foreign foreign uh, uh, financial stability concerns that worry the Fed. Uh, but there are all sorts of ructions uh, happening that we can't know about under the surface. Um, and I think that... W- even today, you can take a look at uh, the forward rates. Uh, they're also coming down at an incredible rate. Two years down 15 basis points. The five years down 20 basis points. These are the sort of things that uh, create instability and systemic players who are in the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that an LTCM could happen, but something of the nature that's more systemic could happen. And when when we saw this in December 2018, when uh, we saw high yield become infected, that is uh, credit become infected, I think that's what caused the pivot. Uh, it wouldn't be as aggressive in a, a pivot this time, but it would still be a pivot in all likelihood down from 75 and 75 basis points by the Fed to maybe 50 and 25. So, Ed, is that where you're looking for that financial instability to come in in the credit market? Or is it somewhere where we're not expecting it? Because in, in theory, a lot of these companies refight a lot of their debts, their maturities are pushed out. So as long as you have margins holding up okay and demands okay, the, in theory, the credit market should be fine. It's been very quiescent. If you look at spreads, uh, they're not even back to the levels that they were at their highs uh, in the in the summer. Uh, for credit markets. Uh, some triple Bs are trading wider, though, than uh, double Bs. So you do have the signs that the most stressed companies are starting to uh, to buckle under uh, what's happening. But then again, a week ago, no one would have said that we would see 100 basis points moves in, in the, uh, the 30-year guilt. Uh, so we really are in an unprecedented level of monetary tightening and that yep. leads to unprecedented outcomes. Jamie, let's turn to the to the fiscal side of the the ledger as you say this is basically the action today taken by the Bank of England bought the treasury the chancellor the government some time. How could what is a reasonable path for the for the treasury to to mitigate the effect or walk back some of the policy that has been I, Aside from the politics, how could it be? How could you do it other than just saying, "Made a mistake, we're done." Mm. <laughs> so I, th- I, th- I think they're going to try uh, a couple of things. I think they're going to try and announce spending cuts to, to try and balance the books relative to the, yep. the tax giveaways. 
And I think that's not going to work because you can't credibly commit to spending, to cutting spending by as much as is needed because it's already been cut so far. You can't destroy it twice. So I think there's that that is not going to go down well with markets unless they're very well articulated line by line cuts and what they're going to do. Just saying you're going to cut spending isn't going to cut. And they're going to have to talk about the NHS if that's going to be incredible. And and pensions and welfare, probably. How, 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 How are they going to do that? Like just, it, it, it looks like the NHS is going to be expanding even more, particularly after COVID. Like, how can they possibly make cuts to that? It's, well, it's a tax-funded system. Yeah. So I think they're they're in big trouble on the on the spending side. They can't. They can't. So what's the other thing they can do? They can roll back on the taxes. They're going to have to do. I think they're going to have to show some willing to take those plans back a bit, because they are so expensive and unjustifiable when the alternative is cutting spending. Which tax cuts in particular have cost the money? Because it's interesting because it, I, I saw the numbers over the weekend. The the top rate actually yeah, that doesn't much, raise, that doesn't did, raise much. It doesn't yeah. So you don't actually need to do much on the top rate. I think actually that was that was just a, that just brought a, the the question of competence into yeah, into or, play. Or I don't just, think it's just kind of awareness. Yeah, yeah. It's just it was a tone deaf policy and it, it, it was it was terrible. Anyway, but you're right, it doesn't cost much. What costs a lot is the NICs. The national insurance yep. contributions, these are employee taxes, employer taxes, um, and the corporation tax. They were planning to raise the tax on profits going up over the next few years. They've abandoned that plan. They may have to just reinstate it and say, we'll try and cut it if if it turns out to be affordable. Something like that would be a sensible strategy, I think, at this stage. A little bit of spending cuts where it's possible. Abandon the, the CT uh, uh, cuts or the failure to lift them up. And then you're getting somewhere there, but you know, as we we talked about this yesterday on the radio, once the cred- credibility is gone, yep, you can't win it back. So you can do all this stuff, but are you going to get back to where you started? No. Uh, quick point on that: um, Does the BOE have credibility at this point? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they've done; they had no choice. They've done what they needed to do. They've said they're going to raise rates uh, to try and essentially to, to to bring some faith back into the financial system with uh, the and defend the pound. That's required. And they've done the only thing they could do, which is prevent a financial crisis from erupting. So they had no other option. Ed, you are a financial commentator that sits outside the United, sits outside the UK and you watch what happens. <laughs> Jamie talks about credibility. What is the perception on Wall Street of UK credibility, do you think, right now? I think that the UK has uh, forfeited a lot of credibility. It's to the point where people are talking about the IMF, uh, the 76 crisis, Sterling crisis, etc. And really, it's it, it is about buying time. Uh, mm-hmm. The question is, is, you know, what can the UK government do now in order to um, create an environment that is much more orderly? Now, all the moves that we're seeing today, none of them are fundamental moves they are all repositioning. No one knows what to do. So when you were talking about the dollar index now at 112 DXY below 113 and, you know, the pound uh, actually strengthening and the euro strengthening, that's just positioning. It has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with anything fundamental. We need to see some sort of action in order to move to more fundamental uh, stability. All right, guys, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Uh, Jamie Rush of Bloomberg Economics and Edward Harrison of Bloomberg Senior Markets Editor. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. More on energy, though, next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Any deliberate disruption of the EU energy infrastructure is completely unacceptable, and it will be met with a uh, robust and united uh, response. The view from Brussels, sabotage seems to be 
the word of the moment when it comes to the European gas story. Uh, we have seen um, explosions, it appears, uh, under the Baltic Sea that have caused these gas pipelines to be punctured. We talk about Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, huge plumes of gas coming to the surface. Uh, you've all seen the images now, I'm sure, uh, coming from the, uh, the Danish military. Um, that is methane. That is going into the environment. That is a huge problem. It is a huge problem as well because it basically means that these pipelines are now out of action for a very, very long period of time. We've also now got issues relating to the transit of natural gas out of Russia through Ukraine as well. Uh, earlier we spoke to Yuri Vichenko, who runs NAFTA Gas, a very, very downbeat in terms of what he anticipates happens next. Um, joining us now to talk about all of this, um, her, her missives increasingly feel like they're out of a spy novel, is Bloomberg's Rachel Morrison. Rachel, what I, the, 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 the talk out of Brussels is of sabotage. What do we actually know? Yes, we've had a few governments come out and make the very good point that it's unlikely that there would be blasts or explosions, you know, naturally. So we know that the Swedish um, authorities have detected seismic activity that points to explosions carried out. So that's really why people are calling this sabotage. And you know, it's difficult to tell at this point because nobody has been able to get that near to the pipelines to assess the damage. And that's mainly because, as you mentioned, the methane is still leaving the pipeline and, and it's not safe. I mean, it's a highly flammable um, substance. So really, that needs to all, all the gas needs to leave the pipeline before any more investigations can happen into what exactly has gone on. Um, how long is that going to take? Like, what's the process, the technical process right now? Well, we've had um, some information this afternoon from Denmark saying that they're expecting all the gas um, remaining in the pipelines to be gone by Sunday. Already, they think more than half has escaped into the sea. So at that point, you know, on Sunday, they may be able to get some equipment closer to the site to um, have a look. But that said, they do need to let the methane kind of escape from the atmosphere because if it's all sitting near there, you know, that's why there's a big ban on ships going anywhere near that because you don't want to sort of set anything on fire or cause any kind of a spark in that area. Surrenders. Do we know how long these pipelines could be out for? I guess without proper examination, it's very hard to tell. But is the expectation now that they could be out for an extended period of time. There was always this idea that if the Russians wanted to turn the supply back on again, they could. I'm assuming that now doesn't exist. Yes, Nord Stream 2 had never been operational. So, you know, that had already been sort of taken off the table, as it were. With Nord Stream 1, flows on that had stopped as well. However, Europe does still have decades worth of long-term contracts with Gazprom for gas coming along that pipeline. So that does need to be addressed at some point. But we were starting to, you know, the kind of base case was starting to be that Europe wouldn't get any gas um, along Nord Stream 1 this winter. Mm -hmm. But perhaps, you know, this accelerates talks to try to, um, from Europe's side, uh, limit our involvement in in that pipeline again. I mean, it sort of depends on the diplomacy and the politics from this point. Right, right. That's what I was going to say is that I feel like the base case was that we couldn't depend on Russian gas no matter what in the winter. Okay, fine. But it feels like this ups the ante in that now we have to consider a world where Russia potentially 
uh, can attack energy infrastructure in a way that also hurts Europe. Is that a, a possibility that countries in Europe are starting to really prepare themselves for? Yes, it's interesting as we try to figure out who's behind the attacks. And we, we just don't know at this point. But it does kind of expose the vulnerability of energy infrastructure at a kind of crucial point to attacks. And Ukraine has been talking a lot about, you know, expecting cyber attacks. And we know that Germany, Norway, um Sweden, they're all stepping up vigilance around all of their energy infrastructure because of that threat. You know, everyone perceives that there's been one act of sabotage. There could be more. So really, at this point, I suppose all options are available because we don't know who's behind the attack and we can only guess at the motivation for it. But it is creating that sort of fear factor in Europe about what might happen next. Rachel, I'm sure you and your team speak to specialists in terms of how hardened Europe's energy infrastructure actually in reality is, both physically and, and in the cyber realm. What do they say when you talk to them about what? Like, how big is the risk here? How easy would it be to cause... I, we saw the Colonial Pipeline being taken out by, by hackers in mm-hmm. the United States. How easy would that be to replicate in Europe? I mean, when when you are designing and building infrastructure, there are kind of hoops you have to jump through in terms of how resilient it needs to be, particularly things like nuclear power plants. You know, all of the nuclear part of those would be completely encased in concrete and, you know, have to withstand aeroplanes flying into it and things. However, this pipeline, you know, it's four centimetres thick and even still... Um, whatever it was that caused the blast managed to get through that and in quite a significant way. So I suppose if you have, they measure it in um, kilograms of TNT, not meaning that it was dynamite that caused it, but that's just a way of measuring it. You know, if you have a big enough explosive, I suppose you can blow up anything. But, you know, in terms of the grid and things, Europe does have a pretty resilient energy system. Rachel, thank you so much. You have been an amazing resource uh, on this. Uh, Rachel Morrison, Bloomberg's team leader for Power Gas, Renewables, and Spy Novels uh, over in Europe. Um, Okay, so that's the geopolitics. That's the energy picture. It's also the BOE picture. It's the market picture. The conversation overnight also centered around the dollar. Will we see a Plaza Accord 2.0? We're going to talk to someone who was there trading FX during the last Plaza Accord. It's Vin Signorella. He's going to give us the breakdown. What conditions would we need to see to get something like that? Larry Summers pointed to the emerging market risk and less for the U.S. risk. But we'll talk about that financial instability risk next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Okay, it has been quite three days worth of trading. Let's get you a quick caught up here on the markets in the U.S. Equities, yes, are rallying. The dollar really rolling over here off the lows with the Bloomberg dollar index is down by six-tenths of one percent. The S&P rose for the first time since last Wednesday, and the 10-year yield dropped towards 3.76 percent. It did pierce 4 percent earlier. So what do we learn? We got still whippy action. We still have hawkish central banks. And today, maybe we're taking a little bit of a breather. And maybe today won't be a dead cap bounce if yields and dollar can kind of keep a lid uh, on that within the markets. Um, 
But Guy, I think as we go forward, I think that the ram. Whenever we talk to asset managers, we talk big big head fund managers. No matter what they say, they say this is actually about the dollar. The stuff in the UK is UK, and that had a, a big effect on asset prices, etc. But really, at the at the core of this is a strong dollar story that yep. doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Yeah, and in some ways, that was the mistake that the British government made. The new British government made is they didn't realize the policy impacts mm-hmm. that, that that they would see. Because what they hadn't calculated was that the markets are a bit nuts right now, very mm. febrile, and we have an incredibly strong dollar. And that's a really tough comp- sort of combination to launch something. Let's let's be polite here, innovative into the market. That and I think really that's polite. that. It, so basically, they, they, this was this was they they could have got away with this at a different moment they could have got away with this kind mm-hmm. of policy and others have at a different moment but this is the era of the strong dollar mm-hmm. and if you push against that you are going to be punished and i think that's what we've seen over the last couple of days yeah which raised the question overnight will we see some kind of coordinated action against the strong dollar it also cropped up when the uh, when japan intervened within the yen so on this point we want to talk to vincent signorella from bloomberg audio squawk macro squawk he, he talks all day on the terminal and i bring this up because guy always laughs as if i'm calling vince old i'm not calling vince old i'm <laughs> highlighting the fact she called vince to be fair, she calls me old all, all the time. time. All, it's, it's a thing. <laughs> so, but to the point is that Vince was around in the Plaza Accord when that happened and how to trade it. And so he's the perfect person to get perspective on this. He's not old. He's mature. How about that? Is that better? <laughs> I'll um, Vince, Vince, what was the Plaza Accord? I'm sorry, what or when? What? Or both. Uh, well, the Plaza Accord 1985 uh, was... It was really orchestrated by the United States. The dollar had gone up uh, substantially. I think the Deutsche Mark went to 345 at one point. It was coming down. <clears throat> it was about uh, 282 when they orchestrated this on a, on a weekend. It, um, and so the, the G5 at the time, which it was, uh, got together and decided to sell dollars. Uh, to intervene in the market, to push the dollar down even further. Uh, And it it had a bit to do with um, uh, current account issues and also interest rate disparities between uh, the U.S., Germany, and Germany and the rest of uh, the European loose union at the time. Okay. What are the similarities and differences between then and now? Well, the, the difference is that the dollar was already coming down. So the, the central banks were not going against the trend. They really just, you know, they, they put nitro up <laughs> behind it and really got it moving in a very, very fast way. I, I think the um, – I'm pretty sure we closed on a Friday around 282, and we opened in Asia at uh, 277 in the Deutschmark. So five big figures just at the open, and then it just snowballed after that and just kept on going. Um, the, the similarity is um, the uh, – the extremes to where things have gotten, um, and that the extreme that we saw euro at, at lows, not all-time lows, but lows, uh, dollar-yen up around 145, uh, and now the U.K. potentially uh, orchestrating their own uh, collapse to one double O, and I think that's what it will actually take to ignite it. I'm sure the, the Treasury groups uh, are all talking about what to do, where it comes, when, and if they should do it. And my my guess is that if we should see parity, uh, especially if it happens very very quickly, uh, like a quick overnight or weekend move, I think that would uh, that would get them going. The dollar would obviously be a casualty in in this. What else would mm-hmm. be a casualty? What other asset classes would you see an effect in? Uh, ooh, that's a really good question. Um, 
Like, would would I mean, equities get hammered as the dollar comes down, or would they benefit? No, would... no. I think I think they would. I think they would benefit because it would be similar to what we saw today, where you know the markets saw the Bank of England come in and stabilize financial markets. I think this would be seen as something of stabilizing financial markets, but in, in terms of uh, U.S. equities, I, I think they may lag. Um, of UK equities. I'm not so sure about uh, European equities. There's still the Ukrainian situation mm-hmm. hanging over their head, but it certainly would benefit. Um, you know, uh, I think I think yen would be one of the biggest beneficiaries uh, if we saw bonds rally uh, as they probably would. Do you think we're going to see the BOJ or sorry, excuse me, um, Japan intervene again? Like, is there enough cash? in certain countries to fight against a stronger dollar, even if it's not coordinated? Yeah, I mean, the BOJ has, over the years, intervened uh, multiple times. and They're the biggest of, of the of G20, G10, whatever G you want to put in front of it. Uh, they've done intervention more than, more than any other central bank. And, uh, you know, it's really the Ministry of Finance. And they can do it. They, they, they have enough reserves to do uh, whatever they need to do. Um, but generally speaking, without coordinated intervention, it just doesn't really work. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, you know, I've, I've been on a trading desk and talking. I remember a conversation once with the global FX manager of, of then Fuji Bank in Tokyo telling me, thank God the, the BOJ was buying today. They were the only buyer. We had nowhere to go with these dollars. You know, like they, yeah. There was nobody buying dollars that nobody to sell them to but the central bank. Why would it be in the U.S.'s interest to do this? I think it would be more uh, as a market stabilization situation. You have to wonder, um, you know, U- U.S. corps are, are getting hit really hard uh, with both, uh, you know, they just don't, ha- they don't hedge their FX. So a strong dollar uh, for the major corporations who sell abroad uh, hurts them a great deal. We saw that with Microsoft in the last earnings rounds where they where they said, I think it was a billion dollars in FX losses. Mm. Um, it was something it was something unimaginable. I, I couldn't lose that much money trading if I'd really tried. Um, Don't say that. And yeah, <laughs> I've tried, believe me. Um, and, and so I think they would see it as a stabilization. I also think they would see it as uh, as something of their duty to their 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 G7 partners, if you will, uh, in terms of supporting um, what's going on in those countries. Mm-hmm. You know, if, 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 glo- if global economies fail, it doesn't do much for the United States either. Um, from your perspective right now, are you hearing anything about m- markets not functioning properly? I realize that the gilt market was not functioning properly. Any, a- any other chatter about that anywhere else? No, not that I've seen. I mean, I speak to um, a couple of bank uh, treasury guys. And if there were some issues, um, I'm sure they would tell me. I mean, I haven't. I'm have a guy flashing me now on IB, and he's just talking about something completely different. Um, he's not. Uh, he's not seeing anything, and and he's in the. Uh, he's he's in the asset liability committee. So, if there was something going on in the U.S. rate space, uh, he certainly would tell me. And there's nothing so far. The people I feel sorry for are the people in the back office trying to manage volatility and trying to sort of. <laughs> I, I, trying I to, have to, to explain you, to everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the middle right the now. middle offices of banks are unsung heroes. They're the ones that process all the trades, match up all the trades, uh, and have have saved me and my butt absolutely <laughs> many many times. Well, I'm glad Vince has got friends. 
in the market. Yeah, I mean, he's mature. He, he's this had is, time to accumulate. No, no, don't call him old. Don't leave. Call him he old. can't respond. You I said he was mature. I said mature. I got called a lady on the train the other day, okay? I'm in it with you guys. We're all together in this. <laughs> We're talking about Apple next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. So Guy was not alone in this. Both of us thought one of the top stories today was going to be Apple dropping plans to boost production of iPhone 14s this year after an expected surge in demand just really failed to materialize. They're aiming to produce about 90 million handsets um, in this half. It's about the same uh, as last year. It's supposed to be the growth company, right? So this is a tough headline. Um, Here with me in studio is Ed Ludlow uh, joining me. Ed, what was your biggest takeaway from this? Yeah, it's it's how quickly things have changed. You know, before the iPhone 14 came out, sources had told us that Apple was kind of unexpectedly ramping up for great demand. So we thought we'd get 90 million handsets this year. They go to suppliers and say, hey, let's boost production by 6 million, caught everyone by surprise. And ultimately, all told, based on the report overnight, we're back to 90 million. And, you know, Apple's typically a very conservative company, plays it safe. So either it's kind of misguided its suppliers here or things in the real world, in the economy, have changed that fast. Is it also possible that the product is not as fantastic as as it might have been? Like, is this really a new iPhone? Is this really that much of an evolution? Are people looking at this going, yeah, I can wait. Yeah, well, big shout out to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman. You know, read his stuff on the website and on the Bloomberg terminal if you're if you're a subscriber, because he points out actually the limited updates that there are and what we expect to be in later generations of iPhone. The key piece of reporting overnight, according to sources, is that demand seems to be focused on the pro models, right? The super high spec, expensive model. And in some cases, suppliers of Apple have actually pivoted to focus their production on those pro models. So, you know, this is the Apple story. Rich people buy iPhones and they continue to buy iPhones in recessionary environments. Will they buy enough expensive iPhones Mm -hmm. is really the question. Well, I guess it also, you know, I I always hear the iPhone super cycle, all the people that have old phones all have to upgrade, hence the super cycle, which has yet to materialize. And I wonder if analysts are still looking for that or are they just going to revalue the multiple of Apple based on it being a different kind of company? Yeah, it's a generation to generation thing, right? And this is why we are so spooked today. This is why we're kind of all over the place, because we're looking at data that is relative to the previous generation. Last year, Apple sold 90 million handsets. That was iPhone 13. What was driving the super cycle? 5G. Well, we've all got a 5G phone Mm -hmm. now, or many of Mm -hmm. us, some of us don't. What is it in the iPhone 14 that would drive the upgrades? Well, on the pro end, sophisticated camera technology and and camera-related software, and also satellite. You know, how many people care whether their phone can find them in the middle of the ocean or up a mountain? That was kind of the big tech innovation. This is also what spooked us. The pre-order data coming out of China in particular shows softer interest relative to when we got the launch of the 13 last year. And I think the market's going, "Uh uh-oh, that's not a good sign. Can I point out, I don't have a 5G phone yet. I very much doubt that Alex does. Wait, I do, don't I? Oh, right, okay. I do. Isn't this a 5G phone? You probably can't tell by... say yes for the sake of it. I can't see. (laughs) I'm I'm like shoving it in his face. And he's like, I don't know. That probably answers the question. No, I I have Um, a 5G phone. Okay. Okay, don't mean to disparage you and your 5G ness. <laughs> you um, 
Ed, even if they don't sell more phones, can they make more money? Yes. So this is the point that it's all about ASPs. I go on about ASPs quite a lot, average selling price, that if consumers and rich, wealthy consumers, not just in China, but here in the United States and Europe, buy the higher price point phones, you can offset lower volume growth with just higher average selling price and try and and boost it. And presumably they buy more services as well. It's kind of, are there more can they upsell effectively? They, they can, but remember, at the end of the day, iPhone is still more than 50% of revenue. Right. And while that service's growth is there, and so are wearables, you know, AirPods and the watch, yep. it's still the mainstay. And so that's the hope. But again, this is a company that grows double digits historically, right? Every year, every quarter. I think we're looking at 2% top line growth. Mm-hmm. So there's a limit to how much you can offset with that higher ASP. Okay. Can um, I just point out that Alex Steele very rarely upgrades her phone. No, so it, it's true, but I literally am trying to find out if this is a 5G phone, and I have no idea where to find You don't know. You don't know. I really you? think You're it like, is. You're like, I've though. got a 5G phone, but you have no idea. That's true. He's gonna, I'm going to yeah. give it to Ed. He's going to find it out. To be continued. Okay. I'm, I'm a gog with anticipation. Ed, thank you very much indeed. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You are listening to The Cable. Over the next few hours, all our attention will turn to Florida as we watch the the impact of Hurricane Ian. Uh, It is going to be hitting the handle. It is going to cause significant damage. Um, There is a debate as to whether or not it's a Category 5 or a Category 4 hurricane. Regardless, uh, we are going to see, we understand, a catastrophic storm surge. We're going to see significant flooding. Often it's the rain that comes with these hurricanes that actually ends up causing uh, the most damage. Let's get a sense of what is actually happening on the ground. Will Wade uh, joins us from Tampa. Uh, He's one of Bloomberg's uh, editors. He, He covers power and renewable energy for Bloomberg. Well, what are you seeing right now? What do we what do we know about the path of the hurricane and the damage that it's going to cause? Well, what I'm seeing right now is some wind and some rain, and it's getting stronger. I'm in Tampa right now, so it's not directly in the path. Yesterday, about this time, we thought it was going to be directly in the path. I went out this morning. It was pretty windy, but not enough to like blow out your umbrella. I was just outside a few minutes ago, and it's definitely much stronger wind. But further south, it's much, much stronger. It's going to be a big one. So how quickly is the storm moving in that how hard is it to determine its true path? Because at least from a, my world, commodity perspective, going a little bit east and a little bit west impacts dramatically different areas of the commodity market. How quickly is it moving? Uh, It's moving reasonably fast, but you know what's even more impressive is how quickly it's getting stronger. At 2 a.m., the winds were 120 miles per hour, which is a solid Category 3. By 5 a.m., they were up to 140 miles per hour. That makes it Category 4. Right now, the last report, 155 miles per hour. Two more, 157. That's going to make it Category 5. And at least as long as the hurricane people have been keeping records since 1851, there have only been four Category 5 storms that actually make it ashore in the United States. So this is historic, yeah. no matter how you cut it. How densely populated is the area that it's going to hit? Well, it's going to miss Tampa, so that's a pretty big city. It's coming ashore further, soar, further south in Fort Myers, so it's not as populated, but there's definitely a lot of people there. But right, the last track I looked at, 
has it pretty much turning north and heading straight for Orlando. I mean, that's that's Disney, although Disney World is closed today and tomorrow, I hear. Mm -hmm. But it's going straight for there. And I heard that central Florida, like around Orlando, could get as much as two feet of rain, 24 inches over the next few days. Yeah, that's huge, right? So so is... Is the risk at this point that the rain or a surge from the ocean or the wind? Like, what's the biggest threat? It's kind of all of the above. If you're on the coast, there's going to be a surge. Uh, It could be as high as 18 feet in some areas. So that's going to affect a lot of people, a lot of boats, a lot of fishing vessels out there. As it comes across the state, it's going to dump water on places that are not used to getting anywhere close to this amount of water. It's going to affect everyone in every way. And then what? Then what happens? I, I'm just looking at the track now. I, it kind of goes up. It goes up through the Carolinas, through Jacksonville, um, up north, uh, further north into South Carolina, um, and, sort of, and then North Carolina. I, Atlanta looks like it's going to peripherally be be affected by this. Kind of, how long does the effect of this last? How f- sort of much? How far, much further up the East Coast does it go? Well, the thing about hurricanes is they get strength from water, especially warm water, and uh, you know the climate change is what's making the water get warmer and why is what's fueling this thing so once they make it over land once they make landfall they start to lose strength pretty quickly uh that means doesn't that doesn't mean they go away but by the time it gets to orlando probably thursday afternoon or friday morning they're thinking back down to tropical storm strength which you know it's it's not nothing that's a big storm as it moves forward certainly gonna be a lot of rain up through georgia and the carolinas but it's not going to be hurricane strength um, walk me through the damage assessments that we're looking at right now. $45 billion. That's the last number I heard. That's a big number. <laughs> that is an enormous number. Where's the biggest damage going to be? From what? You know, it's hard to say. I know the orange crop is, is being threatened right now. I mean, it could knocking a lot of oranges off the trees, for starters, it could probably uproot some of them, too. Uh, there's There's fishing. Probably not as much an impact on oil and gas. All of those things are further to the west out in the middle of the Gulf when they come up through New Orleans and Texas. They always shut down production there. Uh, tourism? Disneyland's closed. Yep. I remember my wife being deeply concerned about this when we contemplated a holiday in Florida at this time of year. <laughs> legit no, question. No, legit question. Mm-hmm. No, genuine question. Um, it, it, this is something, as you say, that is that is appearing to become more and more problematic as a result of of, um, climate change. Are these areas becoming more hardened as a result of this? When you you build a house, is the expectation now that it will be hit by maybe not quite such a big hurricane as this, but by hurricanes on a regular basis? You know, that's a really interesting question. I think it's going to vary from community to community. That's all going to be based on local zoning codes. I don't ha- I haven't heard that a whole lot of places are starting to impose stricter building requirements to endure hurricanes. I mean, maybe individual builders might be doing it to be proactive, but I haven't heard that it's widely required. It's mm-hmm. certainly something that people want to think about it, but it will make construction more expensive. Yeah, and also then uh, in insurance. Um, we'll be talking to an insurance CEO tomorrow as well. A lot of people have storm insurance, but they don't have flood insurance. So there's like there's different levels to this and how people are protected and then where the bill ultimately comes due. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Will. We super appreciate it. Stay safe. We look forward to your reporting. Will Wade, Bloomberg's Power and Renewable Energy Editor on the ground in Tampa. 
I'm going to go on TV in about 20 minutes and talk about just this. Uh, there's two other factors that we're looking at. One is the fertilizer industry, mosaics, uh, fertilizer um area and mine is like literally right in the path of the storm. And then there's also a major climate risk event that could happen because of the chemicals that's a byproduct from making fertilizer are just kind of sitting in like these big piles. And if a storm surge happens, that gets wiped out and put in back into the water and it could get really ugly. So essentially you're going on television to talk about the weather. Oh man. No. Fertilizer. Fertilizer. And orange juice. Damn and the it. effect that the weather is going to have. It's the weather. It is oh, the weather. He wins. It is the subject <laughs> that everybody needs to focus on. Um, we certainly have taken the temperature of the uh, uh, of the financial markets today, um, and it's been it's been hugely variable. We'll continue the coverage tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.